Good morning. Glad to be with you today. Good morning, Janice. We're glad you're here with us. <laughs> Throughout um, the years of his early ministry, uh, though Jesus was often surrounded by crowds of people, Jesus particularly invited individual men and women to be with him. Follow me were his familiar words. And what he invited them to was to be with him, to learn from him, to become like him. And those that accepted Jesus' invitation were called disciples. The Greek word is mathetes, and it's translated as disciple, but more simply, simply, more simply, simply means learner, learner. A disciple is someone who is engaged in learning as a student of a teacher with, of course, the intention to learn from their teacher, but more than that, to become like their teacher. Jesus described the outcome of the learning of a disciple this way, a disciple is not above the teacher, but they are to become like the teacher. <clears throat> a disciple of Jesus, then, is someone who is learning from Jesus how to live their life as Jesus lived his life. And we do that in three ways. Through assimilation of Jesus' life and teaching that is in the Gospels, through a daily interactive relationship and companionship with Jesus, and then also through relationship with and learning from others of his disciples. And I would suggest to you that Jesus is still inviting children and teens and adults to follow him, to be his student, to learn from him and become like him. And he's inviting you and I to be his student, to learn from him, to become like him. You know, we face a lot of challenges in our lives, in our world, circumstances that we don't always know how to deal with. And Jesus wants to be with us to help us to navigate those circumstances by learning from him to help us in this process of being students of Jesus, we've begun a new series called Following Jesus, His Life and Teaching. And we're using a harmony of the Gospels, which uh, I've mentioned before, combines the passages of the four Gospels into more of a single story. And each Sunday, um, if we could uh, get this passed out this morning, this is the uh, one that was here for next Sunday. Can we get somebody to do that? so that it's happening. Um, each week, I'm preparing um, a sheet for you that has the story, that has the passages that combine into that story for you to read through the week. 
for you to look at, to consider, to think about, to pray about, invite the Holy Spirit to be with you. I've provided some questions that perhaps could stir that with you. Some of the passages are longer. Uh, this week's uh, section of material I've broken into three paragraphs. And it, it might behoove you simply to, on Monday uh, or this afternoon when you go home, to just read through that first paragraph. And then look at the questions. And then on Monday or Tuesday or another time this week, look at the second paragraph. I'm providing this as a tool for you because as a student, there sometimes is homework. And, and I would like to suggest that, that Jesus wants to help you grow as his student. And one of the primary ways we can do that is to read the scriptures with him by our side. With him by us as a mentor and a guide, the Holy Spirit helping us to understand what we're reading, for him to point out, hey, look at that. Have you ever noticed that before? This is really cool. Look what I did there. Look what I said then. So I'm going to give you these every week. So every week you can go home with homework as a student of Jesus to reflect and read. And when I come next week, you're going to have ideas and familiarity. You're going to have connected with Jesus already about the material. Last week, we started looking at Jesus' childhood and youth. And I want to continue this morning and pick up kind of where we left off. But before we do that, let's pray. Jesus, we um, are in your class today. Me too. We all come as students to learn from you, to grow as your disciple, to learn from you, to notice the kind of life you lived and are inviting us to live. And would you help us? Would you come alongside us, Holy Spirit? You who are um, provided by the Father and the Son to teach us all things. We say yes. We say yes to you, your teaching. Yes to you as our guide in these stories and teachings of Jesus. Might you open our eyes to see what we've not seen before, to hear what we have not heard before, and to grow in becoming like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the text this week is not on that sheet. That's for next week. The text for this week is from Matthew 2, 21, as well as Luke 24 through 52. And I have it on the screen. After returning to Israel following their exile in Egypt, Joseph and Mary returned to their own town of Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. The boy grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. 
And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple complex, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Here, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know? that I must be involved in the things of my father? But they did not understand what he said. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. As I read through uh, this passage numerous times over the last few weeks, a a variety of things uh, stood out to me, pointed out to me. Last week, we looked at a few of those, and so I'm going to kind of pick up somewhat in the middle of the story. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. After three days, they found him in the temple complex, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. At age 12, Jesus, like other Jewish boys, would have been well along in his studies of Jewish history, Jewish customs and culture, the law, the prophets, the writings and the oral interpretations of the scriptures passed down through the generations. Yet his questions, understanding, and answers astounded all those who heard him. And while we might think, well, yes, of course, Jesus would have been smart. In fact, he probably was the smartest person who's ever lived. I believe we can also deduce that he was exceptional in the amount of time and effort he would have spent studying and growing in understanding and wisdom, even as this text references earlier on. Study and memorization of God's Word would have been a significant part of his life up to that point and beyond. This, I would suggest to you, is a first of one of Jesus' spiritual practices that we see in this text. And over the months, as we look at the varieties of passages, we're going to look at what are those spiritual disciplines, what are those practices of Jesus that he implemented that we can learn from him. Does that make sense? Jesus did not become who he was automatically, neither do we. Jesus, when he was born as a a brand new baby, was not able to read the 
Torah. He had to learn to read the Torah. He had to learn to interpret the passages. So do we. Jesus had a practice of studying God's word. Next verses. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Here your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Well, why were you searching for me, he asked them. Didn't you know that I must be involved in the things of my father? Now, last week, Joy, you can come on up. Joy shared with me after the service something that she had gotten as we were reading through and looking at this passage. Um, and I asked her to share that with us as well because I thought it was really significant. So I was just thinking about how a little bit of the humanity of Jesus shows through in this story, and I feel like that's one of the gifts we can get from this being in the scripture. So there's very few things of his childhood, and this is one of them. And so I was thinking about any 12-year-old who you might know. And we know because Jesus died and rose and all that stuff that he didn't sin, right? So when he stays behind in the temple and he's lost, he wasn't sinning. And I thought, you know, that kind of sounds like something that a 12-year-old might do. They're just doing their own thing. They've got something going on, something on they're really excited and really interested in, and they just get all focused on whatever that thing is that captures their interest, and everything else kind of tunes out and falls away. For Jesus, it was being in the temple, which because of why he's telling us, because of his love for the Word of God. Um, and all of a sudden, the parents are gone, and he doesn't know. And as the parents show up, and he's probably like, huh, what? Well, I... I I was here the whole time. I mean, what happened? And Mary, you know, doing the parent, hey, what were you doing with that? You know, and I was thinking in my home, of course, my kids are not 12, but, you know, I was thinking about, what were you thinking? <laughs> and they're standing there going, you know, and there's water all over the floor and the walls. Well, I heard you say the floor was really messy, and I just got this towel out, and I was trying to clean the floor for you. And, you know, there's this huge mess everywhere, but the intention of the kid, and they're all there like, oh, but, Mom, I, I didn't. I wasn't trying to make you mad. In fact, I was trying to help you. Mm. And I feel like we see a little bit of that sort of thing in Jesus in this passage of, well, I'm sorry. I, it doesn't say that, he doesn't say I'm sorry, but just that, um, just kind of the, the getting lost in, in his own world. Like we could see probably any other 12-year-old or middle school or ourselves at that age or um, anyone else you know at that age. And I, I just think it's kind of beautiful um, from from a parenting perspective or from any of you who aren't a parent at this stage of your life but you know kids in this age age range to just remember that things come out of our humanity and uh it's just beautiful to see that even modeled in jesus i think and you know the, his parents didn't get it right away <laughs> it says that you know what um and so we have an opportunity to try to get it a little bit better because of that example that's here Thank you. So we know that we're working with an English text that was written from a Greek text. And it crossed my mind as she was just speaking that maybe the way that sentence could be understood was, you were searching for me? Fitting her story that he was lost. I also wondered, you know, we get, this is a little upsetting to us, I think, this whole thing. So I just pause for some. Is it possible that they had, in fact, 
taken him to the temple and, he, and allowed him to stay there for part of the time and had come home each night or something. They traveled in caravans. He would have been with his cousins. This is not an odd thing. And I agree. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, I lost track of time. You were looking for me? Anyway, this is a thought. I'm going to skip uh, Jesus' next words because I want to spend uh, more time a little bit later. Next passage from uh, two, uh, Luke 2.50. But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. The word obedient uh, there in that sentence is actually the word submit. And it is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.21, where Paul says and instructs us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so I, I was just caught one of the, the mornings that I was looking at this and, wow, there is Jesus showing us how to submit. And here we're instructed by Paul to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You catch it? Jesus is our teacher. Jesus was 12. And for 18 more years, he lived in the house of his parents, submitting to them, learning the trade of Joseph. Sometime in there, the scriptures are silent about it, sometime in there, it seems that Joseph passed away and Jesus needed to stay at home and help out as the eldest son. He submitted to the needs. This, is the, this idea of submission is also shared with us from Philippians chapter 2. And keep in mind Ephesians here as we look at this one, because this idea of submission to one another is, is what we're supposed to learn how to do. Philippians 2, 5, 8. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what, not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. When Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he is inviting us to this kind of a posture, this kind of a lifestyle. For 30 years, years, including his younger years, Jesus practiced submission to his parents. And even from the cross, Jesus expressed a kind of submission by making provision for Mary, Mary's care by the Apostle John, if you remember that. So I would suggest to you that this is a second spiritual practice 
that we see Jesus expressing in this text, Jesus practiced submission to others. Can we get the next slide up, David? This week after uh, the morning that I had read this and reflected on this and considered this, I, I was driving to work and I just said, okay, Jesus, I'm ready. I'm supposed to submit uh, to one another today. I'm supposed to be uh, practicing submission. So how about while I'm driving? Let's see, what would that look like to practice submission to others while I'm driving? Okay, got that one. Back off. Let them have their way. All right, you first. I have this tendency when I stop at stop signs to wait an extra, unless I'm going to irritate somebody, but just to wait an extra and just, you go first. Did that this morning. Practicing submission. Then I went to work and I have uh, an accounting assistant that is an incredible person and a little overworked. And uh, because I've been given so many additional tasks that I am not doing all the accounting that I used to do, she's now doing kind of her job, my job, and I'm, I get to do any of the weird stuff, she says. And that morning I went in, asked her how she was doing. The day before I had not been there, I was off on Monday uh, to be with Janice and her family. And um, I went in and said, how can I serve you today? What are you facing today and what you need to do that I could partner with you? And I practiced submission with her. It was cool. Luke 2, uh, 51. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. This statement by Luke is similar to the one earlier in verse 40, where Luke was speaking of Jesus' growth from his early years up until he was 12. Now he's talking about uh, Jesus at age 12 to 30. The the boy grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. That's what he had said the first time. This second time, now he's speaking of that. Those things increasing. Over the next 18 years, Jesus increased in wisdom, maturity, physical growth, and this time not just experiencing God's favor, but the favor of others. And the very first time I looked at this uh, passage a couple of weeks ago, it, uh, out of my training and my background, I was able to, to remember, looking at the word favor, that more than likely that was going to be the word grace, the same as in the previous passage, and it is. Translators decided to say, call it favor, but the reality is, is the word grace is the same in both of them. So Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in the grace of God and of people upon him. And I said last week that grace does not mean unmerited favor in this particular application. In fact, in most of its applications. But we have uh, become confused, I think, about the word grace and mixing it with mercy on this unmerited thing. And rather, this word has the meaning at its core of the joy and pleasure placed on another the joy and pleasure and gifts, placing gifts, charismata, grace, gift, uh, this whole idea. And we speak of God's empowering presence as a definition for grace. God's pleasure, His joy, His empowering, His Himself, the giving of Himself. And Jesus was increasing in this. And next week, when we look at the baptism, we're going to see a declaration of this. 
Now, these things we've touched on are things that can be seen and observed using your Bible and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but there are elements of, of these words and descriptions that can go deeper when we use biblical study tools, such as commentaries, Bible dictionaries. Not that you would tend to do that, but they are available. And they're available for free on the internet these days. So I want to go back now to Jesus' statement from verse 49. And I want to share with you some things that, that I experienced as I looked at those words more deeply. These are the words where Jesus said, Didn't you know that I must be involved in the things of my Father. So what are the things of the Father that he's referring to? Some translators conclude it as being the temple. And they translate the sentence, I must be in my Father's house. The word house is not in the text. It says, in the things of my Father. That, that's what it says in the Greek, in the things of my Father. But translators want to help us understand what Jesus is talking about. So some have concluded, well, he's in the temple. And he does reference, later in the book of John, he references God's house. That's when he's, when he's doing the cleaning up the house thing with his vacuum and whip. <laughs> um, speaking of the Father's house. Um, others have translated it, I must be about my father's business, the things of my father, my father's business. He had been raised uh, serving uh, Joseph, learning Joseph's trade. Jesus understood what it meant to be an apprentice. Jesus knew what it meant to be a student. And here he is continuing now to be a student of the father and the things of the father. What seems more reasonable to me is the things here might better be described as the activities of the Father. I must be involved in my Father's activities. The idea of the activities of God expands later to include what, he, what we translate the work of God. When Jesus is teaching and healing and ministering in John 5, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders were once again upset with him and mad at him. You're not supposed to do that. You're in trouble, Jesus. And Jesus replied to them, being upset with him having healed, and he says in John 5, 17, My Father is always working to this very day, and I too am working. I believe that this is an expansion from his statement as a 12-year-old when he said, I must be about the things of my father. I must be about the activities of my father. So where was he at age 12? He was in the temple. He was concerned about the things that were happening there and was sitting at the feet of other teachers learning and interacting because he was about the things of the father, the activities of the father. The word work is actually the, the, a, a verb that just means to be active or to do. And, and 517 really could be better translated, my father is always doing. My father is always active. To this very day, and I too am working. And, and to this very day, 
as it's translated here, might be translated better even this day, even this very day. My Father is always active, even today, saying, what I just did, I'm just coming along God on His side. And they took up stones to kill Him for what He said. My Father is always at work, even today, when I was just healed this man. Now, that's not all there. But I believe that this aspect about being about the things of God is another one of Jesus' spiritual practices. In verse 19 of John 5, he says, Jesus explained to them, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. Do, that's the same word. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He does only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He is doing. In fact, the Father will show Him how to do even greater works than healing this man. And then you will be truly astonished. So we see here a third spiritual practice that Jesus is expressing that I don't think I have up on the screen, which is to be doing the things of God. A little vague, a little kind of out there, but there's a practice involved that Jesus was practicing at age 12. A spiritual discipline of, of listening to, seeking to understand, learning to hear the voice of God, and to do it. Which echoes back to the last few weeks that we were teaching about hearing the words of Jesus and doing them. Yes. I can't hear you. Yeah. One time I said no, huh? (laughs) Can we get the mic on? Yeah. So, you know, when we're in trouble, we get really anxious and we do ask the questions, where are you, God, and what are you doing? Hmm. And why are you treating me like this? This is Mary's question, right, to Jesus. Why have you treated us like this? And you grow anxious. And what Randy's talking about, when Jesus says, seriously, I'm always at work in your trouble. When you got anxious, I'm at work. I am always at work at the Father. And you missed that? And I think what Randy's saying here is this third spiritual practice, which is looking for what the Father is doing. You might want to look at what the Father is doing in your trouble. In your messed up life, when things are not working, look for what the Father is doing because he's always at work. So that. Thank you. That was good. All right, the final thing I want to to look at. Uh, Doing the... Uh, reading as I was doing and inviting you to do where I simply uh, day after day, numerous days during the week would just reflect on the passage and highlight the things that stood out. That's how I prepared to a great degree for teaching this morning. I just had the passage like you guys do. I'm looking at, I'm reading, I'm asking the Holy Spirit, what do you want to show me today? And on one of the mornings, you know, I want to say, I I don't know why, 
my eyes caught the word must. <laughs> but I didn't know why, because the Holy Spirit pointed it out. Jesus said the words, I must be involved in the activities of the Father. And, and when I looked at that word must, and what it means, I, I, I felt leading to look at a Bible dictionary that I work with. David, next slide. Um, oh, another one, please. So there's something I use. That's called an interlinearity. It's the New American, uh, no, I'm sorry, that's the New American Standard Bible on the left. Cross-references over here, tools. Claire and I both have this, and, and we use it a lot. Here's, here's the, the statement that we're looking at. Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my Father's house? And the word must, that little tiny word, and it isn't even in this text. It's translated in another one. Did you not know that I must, had is the way it's translated, must, stood out to me. And I opened up that particular word. I began to look at it. Must was used 58 times, translated 58 times this word, and 31 times it's used uh, and it's translated ought. I ought to have been doing that. And I got caught by this and I thought, you know, ought and must, they're, to me, those are different. I must sounds like an internal uh, passion response. Ought, ought, yeah, we don't do what we ought to do. <laughs> we do what we want to do. And I think this, this must was coming out of both Jesus' passion and the passion of the Father. And then uh, I, I looked even further in and, and found that that little word must is the word dei, D-E-I. Turn next slide. It's up there. And, and one of the articles translated the, had as its header the dei of God. The must of God. What is, this is weird. Listen to this. Sometimes the term dei expresses God's will in the law with which Jesus may clash as he follows the dei of God's will as he himself knows it. The dei thus represents for Jesus a rule of life, another spiritual practice. It is, the, it is the dei of the divine lordship which governs his work and activities, the activities of God, and leads him to suffering and glory. See all the scripture verses in there? That's how this, these kind of tools work. Its basis is God's declared will as spoken in the scriptures. His disciples and His church stand under the same dei that Jesus stood under. And this dei is the very passion and love of God for the salvation of the world and humankind. I must be about the activities of the Father. Listen to a handful of scriptures, and I had to leave off a bunch of them. 
Luke 4.43 says, Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. I must. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up, he saw Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Hurry and come down, Zacchaeus, for today I must come to your house. It is the day of God that he interact with Zacchaeus. I must come to your house today. Luke 24, 44. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All those references, even in our own passage at the beginning, the things being of, of the scriptures being fulfilled, those are the day of God. Those are the things that must be done. Listen to this one, John 3, 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. We must be born again. It's an invitation. No question about it, but it is God's day. Not only for you and me, but for every human being. John 10, 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Those sheep are us. The fold was the nation of Israel. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, the Jewish nation, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with the Israel nation and with one shepherd. That was the heart of Jesus. He must reach out to us. Matthew 16, 21. From this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He must go to Jerusalem. It is the day of God for him to have gone to the cross. Luke 24, 26, echoing this, Was it not necessary that the Messiah must suffer these things and then enter into his glory? John 29, 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. How about this one? Mark 13, 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. Just a side interesting one. So as I, as I reflected on what I had seen and, and read that day and what I was experiencing, I, I wrote this uh, in my journaling, my reflections. This morning as I reread the passage again, new things I had not seen before stood out to me. The image or metaphor of myself walking through a jewel mine came to mind. I pictured myself, for some reason, this picture came in that I'm, I'm like walking through a tunnel, dark tunnel, but with having lights. And 
I had this sense I'm walking through this, this tunnel and it's a jewel mine. I felt like I was being led by a guide who both knows what is in the mind and who deeply, passionately loves these jewels himself. And as we paused on this one jewel named must, a seemingly insignificant word, a seemingly small and insignificant jewel, the guide brushed away some of the dirt through my reading about the word day in the Greek and I found myself moved with great amount of emotion, even tears. And while on one hand I don't understand why I am so moved, on the other I am getting a glimmer of your unfathomable love. I must, Jesus said, be about involved in the things of my Father. I must go to the cross I must rise again. I must reach out to Zacchaeus. As I look in word search at the verses and the statements where you said, I must, Jesus, I'm undone. Your love for me was so great, so unstoppable, that you had to do what you must do. Not, oh, well, I better do what Papa told me because, well, you know, he's my dad. Or even, well, he's God. No, the I must was a unanimous, of one accord, declaration of the one God in three persons, declaring your great and passionate love for me and for us. I must is the same as we must. And I hear those words today still booming out from you across the vastness of time and space, the spiritual and the material realms into this place on this day. And I hear Jesus saying, together we must go make disciples of all peoples. Your children, your parents, your family, your neighbors, your classmates, your co-workers, bringing them into our family baptizing and healing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them about us, about our love, what I did and am doing, and for them to learn to do the very things, everything that I have taught you to do. And never forget, I am always with you, every day, even to the very end of this age. The love of God, the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit was so great that they were driven by love to do what they did. I must be born a human being. I must grow as other children. I must be about my Father's activities. I must, I must, I must, I must. Let's pray.
here in this simple passage, Jesus, you were telling us about the cross. You were telling us why you were born. You were telling us about the resurrection, about filling, baptizing us in your Holy Spirit. All these things, I must. Let us hear your love. Let us learn to hear your heart as we read your words over these months of working our way through the Gospels. And would you teach us what it means for us to live with the Dei of God? The must of God for us? What are those things that we must do? Not ought to do but out of your very love, filling us with passion for others, filling us with your love that overflows and, and naturally reaches out to those who are hurting and broken, to those who are stuck. And would you help us to begin to lay hold of these practices that you did, Jesus, that could we learn from you in our daily lives and our week? Jesus, we want to learn from you. We need to learn from you. Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you open our eyes? Would you help us to see? And would you empower us to do what we cannot do on our own? In Jesus' name, amen. So you've all got your sheets for next week. Uh, there's a thing or two in this passage that's kind of cool. You might read it again and see if the Holy Spirit uh, highlights anything for you. We uh, invite you to come on up if any of you would like to uh, receive some prayer. If something was stirred in your heart, we would love a chance to pray with you, to participate with God in what he's doing in your life, helping you, coming alongside you maybe even, and helping you to understand what it is God's doing for you in this circumstance, as Clara was talking about. Bless you. Thank you for coming. Have a great week, and I'll see you next Sunday.